0: Now our gospel reading, a reading from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me.
1: Well, Ash Wednesday gives us a vital reminder each and every year. You're going to die. Each and every one of us are faced with the prospect that Jesus knew where he was going. He he knew what he was going to do. Uh, This is often called the the second passion prediction in Mark, where Jesus uh, predicts his suffering and his death. But Mark never talks about it. None of the gospel writers ever do in terms of a prediction. But Jesus is teaching his disciples about the kind of Messiah he is, about the kind of person that they are to follow and to emulate, And so on this Ash Wednesday, it's a season to reset, to recalibrate our lives with with the cross at the center. And when we have the cross at the center, we get everything else on the circumference. And that's the beauty of Lent. And and today, actually, we have our our Lent devotionals um, at the welcome table in the back. And so we have like 20 of them left. And so I encourage you um, in this season, leading up to Good Friday, leading up to Easter, leading up to Holy Week, take one of those and take this time, this opportunity to meditate on the cross, to follow Jesus, to think about what it means to be his disciple. And speaking of the disciples, as we go through this passage, and and as a church, we've been reading through Mark this past year, and sometimes you almost have to feel bad for the disciples, don't you? Jesus tells them, he says, I'm gonna teach people in parables, in riddles, in coded language, and, and even though they're gonna hear one thing, You know, about seeds or farmers or bushes or birds or yeast. All of those stories are going to be about something else. And so they've been trained to think, the disciples have been trained to think that when Jesus is talking about this, what he's really doing is talking about that. And I say that that one is tempted to almost feel bad for them because Jesus also told them that as his closest followers, his confidants, Jesus was going to reveal to them the meaning of these coded messages, these riddles, these riddles these mysteries about the kingdom of God. And so here is Jesus telling them as plain as day, as starkly as possible, what was going to happen to him. He was going to be betrayed, killed, and rise again. See, Jesus wasn't merely, you know, foretelling what was going to happen to him. He was forth telling what it means for him to be the Messiah, the King, the Christ, God's anointed, the King, and the kingdom bringer. It meant betrayal. It meant rejection. It meant death and resurrection. It meant victory by way of defeat. And Jesus had to explain this in plain terms because even using the the plainest, simplest, possible language, it didn't then, and if we're honest, it doesn't now still make sense. How can you win by losing? How can you Come in first if you finish last? How can you rule as king over all by becoming a slave to all? How can you achieve eternal life through a humiliating death? Christianity is nothing if not chock full of such seeming contradictions. And since it would be false if they were indeed contradictions, these must instead be paradoxes. And where do we see the paradoxes of Christian faith more than in this passage and also? Uh, beautifully illustrated in what Nate read earlier from from Corinthians, from 2 Corinthians. Poor yet enriching everyone. (laughs) A beautiful study in contradictions that reveals the paradox at the heart of Christianity. Jesus, fully human, fully divine. God is one and three and three and one. Man is a miserable sinner and yet the most exalted creature of all. As Martin Luther said, we are simul justus et peccator, at the same time righteous and sinners. Christianity is paradoxical because Christ himself is a paradox. The king crowned with thorns and enthroned upon a cross. It is into the paradoxes of discipleship that we are invited during this season of Lent. Lent is about fasting in order to feast upon the word. As Jesus says to, uh, to the devil in, in that passage that's often read at Lent about his temptation, man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes, word that comes from the mouth of God. It's about saying no To the flesh, in order to say yes to the spirit. It's about being emptied in order that we might be filled. But a great, great paradox is seen in what Jesus caught his disciples arguing about. Now, they were too embarrassed to admit it, but immediately after hearing Jesus tell them as bluntly and as plainly as possible that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be killed. they had had been arguing about which one of them would be the greatest, the greatest in the kingdom of God. They still thought that when Jesus was talking about the kingdom, he was talking about it, how they had always understood it, just in an, an admittedly very strange and bizarre way. But no matter what Jesus said about suffering, no matter what he said about dying and serving and the first being last, they thought, well, he really means... That he's going to become king in the conventional sense, that he's going to throw out the Romans, and he's going to throw out their Jewish sympathizers, you know, the priestly aristocracy, and those who are closest to him, they will get the prime positions in his government. That was their paradigm. And so no matter what Jesus said, they had to fit that within that framework. They had yet to experience the paradigm shift that comes with the gospel. Now, before we're tempted to laugh at those hapless disciples once again, how guilty are we all of doing the same, of taking what Jesus says and shoehorning it into what we already think? Just has to be that way, right? Making what Jesus teaches us fit what we're already doing or just affirming how we already want to live our lives. How often do we let the existing paradigms function as the screen through which we filter what Jesus has to say? And we can laugh at the disciples for missing the point and arguing, you know, at this most stupid moment about who's the greatest, how can they be fighting about that when they've just heard what Jesus had to say? But how many of our own disputes, if we really boil them down to their core, are about us being the greatest? Right? That, that we're the smartest, the best, the brightest, the most righteous. And the people that we don't agree with are, 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 are wrong and wicked and stupid. We spend so much of our lives convincing ourselves, trying to convince ourselves, you know, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? I am, of course. I know I do that all the time. I'm always making sure, in my own mind at least, that I occupy the high ground upon which I can, you know, look down at everyone else who isn't like me. It's one of our favorite pastimes as human beings. So Jesus calls the 12 to him and he says, well, I guess if they're going to argue about who's the greatest, then I might as well teach them about what true greatness looks like. If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. Now, what's the relationship between servanthood, and this is a nicer translation of, of being a slave, and childhood? What's the relationship between servanthood, between being a slave, and being a child? Well, actually, in Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke, the, 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 the word slave and the word child are actually the same word. And even in Greek, uh, the word for a young boy is, is the same, another um, word for slave, and in some of our own history of language in this country, we capture the, the connection between childhood to calling someone a child and, and their being of a lower servant slave type status. Think of the you know, ugly history of calling people boy, adults you know, boy. And when we understand that, we can understand just how nonsensical and even offensive what Jesus was saying to his disciples was, how, much, how, 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 how absolutely counterintuitive it must have sounded. So for Jesus, the paradox of greatness is that it entails becoming a servant, but what does it mean to be a servant of all? To illustrate his point, Jesus took a child, and he put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so true greatness looks like welcoming a child. So what does this child represent? Now, in that culture, children were utterly dependent. Uh, Matt and I were actually talking about this today, that in our own culture, if you have children that are almost uh, sort of idolized, like as parents, one of the things that we're tempted to do often is build our lives around our children, find our identity and what they do and their activities and making sure they grow up and you know get into the best college and have the best career. But you know that wasn't the problem back then. And it's not that children were hated or despised, it's just that they were not useful. They were takers. They were needy. They could confer no honor, no status, nothing. Children were radically dependent upon adults and their parents. So what does it mean to be a servant? What does it mean to be great? It means to embrace people who cannot do anything for you, who aren't going to help you get ahead who won't enhance your brand or raise your cloud or elevate your status. It means welcoming people who might never, ever give you anything in return. And it means caring about the kind of people that the so-called great people of this world don't have much time for or don't even notice. And so here's the paradox that we're left with tonight. Do do we want to see Jesus? Do we want to see the Father? And Jesus says, don't look up, you know, into the lofty heavens, but look down amongst the lowly here on earth. And so this Lent, you know, there's some things we're going to want to give up. Could be alcohol, could be, you know, social media, Twitter, could be meat. I don't know what that is for you, but, but let's at least give up trying to convince ourselves and the world that we're great that in any sense we're owed or that other people exist as, as means towards an end and let us care for and welcome and embrace people regardless of whether or not we will ever get anything out of it or if anyone is paying attention or notices. It's because we know there's someone who does. Because paradoxically, when we do that, when, when, when we give up trying to be great, we will get the greatest thing of all out of it. We get Jesus himself, the Father himself. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.